but God honors marriage. Jesus said that God, I mean, the Bible says in the book of Malachi, chapter 2, he said God hates divorce. And in Matthew chapter 19, they asked Jesus, um, can a man just put, put away his wife just for any reason? You know, and Jesus said, no. He said, in the beginning, it was not so. He said, then why did uh, Moses give us in Deuteronomy 24 the right to issue a bill of divorce and just, you know, if a woman is not satisfied, just chase her away, you know, that kind of And Jesus said, no, in the beginning, it was not so. He said it was because of the hardness of your heart, the hardness of your heart, that Moses, I'm, I'm, I'm quoting from Matthew 19, I think verse um, uh, 4 or 5. Please look for it and put it on so that for somebody who is new to the Bible, you don't think I'm just making it up. Praise God. Yeah. He said it's because of the hardness of your heart. He said in the beginning, it was not so. In the beginning, it was not so. In the beginning, the story was male and female created Eden. Yeah. And he blessed them. That's what the scripture says. Male and female created them. In the beginning, it was, you know, Genesis chapter 2. Uh, uh, it, it says, so a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And two of them shall become one flesh. One flesh. So I want to read from Ephesians chapter 5. And I'll read from, um, let, me, let me just cut, cut straight to the heart of the matter. Verse 27 and 28 uh, and 29. Ephesians chapter 5. From verse 25, it says, Husband, love your wife. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself to her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she, may, she should be holy and without blemish. Verse 28. So husband ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever ate his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Just as the Lord does the church. For we are all members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bone. Verse 31 says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Somebody say one flesh. Look at your neighbor for me and say one flesh. I want you to help me do it like this. One, one flesh. Praise God. And verse 32, I love this one. He said, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. The Lord bless the reading of his word. Say it better, amen. amen. The Bible talks about the concept of one flesh. Two coming together to become one. So it's you and me incorporated. It's one team, not two. It's one force, not two. And it's one home, not two. It's one family, not two. So the overriding thought for this series is that we are one team. Nobody wins or lose, loses separately. We win and lose together. As simple as that sounds, it's one of the greatest concepts that we need to understand in marriage. That's why the Bible says the marriage is a great mystery. 
Paul said in writing in Ephesians 5 there, he said, I speak concerning Christ and the church. The, one of the reasons why the devil attacks marriages a great deal today is that the devil doesn't even want us to understand the concept of the relationship between Christ and the church. In Revelation 21, the church was called the bride of Christ. In the revelation of the revelator John, the apostle, he said, I, I saw the bride. The bride. The bride. And he was talking about you and I, the church. The moment we, we, we lose the understanding of the mystery of Christ and the church, how the love between Christ and the church is an unconditional love. How the relationship between Christ and the church is Christ working on the church to remove wrinkle and blemish and to make her presentable, then we start to lose sight of what God has in mind concerning the holy matrimony. We are one team. One team. Sometimes it doesn't feel like one team. Yeah. Many of us here support different clubs in the English Premiership and the Nigerian Premiership. I hope so. <laughs> support one club or the other. And when, you know, the league is really going on like it's happening right now, you see the Man U fans and the Arsenal fans and the Chelsea fans and, you know, people talking about different things and are always at loggerheads because we're in different teams. Yeah, we're in different teams. And we're looking for how to outsmart, outsmart and outplay one another. We're looking for who will top the league table. Some people run their homes from that perspective, always looking for who will top the league table. Yeah. Always looking for who will, who will have the most points and who will score the most goals. So it's a competition rather than a collaboration. And it's, the truth is that marriage cannot be successful until we understand the concept of one flesh. It's you and me incorporated. And in this first message, I'll be talking about the big question, asset or liability. Many of us have business mindset. Uh, or we're, we're, we're business people. And we understand that for a business to succeed, you acquire more assets than you should acquire liabilities. And even when you acquire liabilities, you acquire them cautiously. It's because you probably cannot do without it. I hope somebody's listening to me this morning. And in a relationship, as much as we want to be one, we also need to come with the consciousness of the fact that am I an asset or am I a liability? I want us to look at, you know, how a successful you and me incorporated, what, what does it look like? What does a successful you and me incorporated look like? And who makes up the organization? What's an asset? What's a liability? Just the, the underlining, I mean, underlining knowledge of asset and liability. We say that an asset adds value, a liability reduces value. Yeah. So, in this you and me incorporated, it's good for us to ask the question, am I an asset or a liability? I was speaking to singles last night, and the important thing that singles need to note is the big question we always ask, Am I the person 
that the person that I'm looking for is looking for. Am I an asset or am I a liability? You know, there's a construct that we can have in marriage that it looks like somebody is an asset and another one is a liability. Sometimes it's untrue. Some other times it looks like it's true and somebody needs to work on something. And that's the foundation of issues that we then start to deal with. And it starts to show up sometimes in just a dating relationship. What do you bring to the table? What kind of attitudes, perspectives, resources, belief system, criticism? Is it positive or negative criticism? Uh, um, What kind of feedback do you bring to the table? What do you bring to the table? And the things that you bring to the table, are they adding value to this relationship or are they tearing it down? In this series, we're going to discuss some uh, um, very interesting truths that we all need to take home. I'm not in a hurry. It's just the first message in the series. I know I'm saying too many things at the same time. It's just a way of laying the foundation. And I want you to follow me very, very carefully. Very, very carefully. In Genesis chapter 2, when you read from verse 15, you see, or verse 8 rather, you see God with the first man, Adam, and God postured Adam as a person of value. Serious value. How do I mean? In Genesis 2, from verse 8, the Bible talks about God planting a garden eastward in Eden. And God described the garden. The four rivers, or river heads that flows through the garden. The gold, the precious stones within the garden. The plants, the different things that God put within the garden. It looked like the first earthly enterprise that God himself would put in place. If we, I mean, time will not permit me, but if you read it from Genesis chapter 2, uh, from verse 8, um, just down there, can you put it up for me, please? The Lord God planted the garden eastward in Eden, and he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the, 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 the ground of the, the Lord God made every tree, every tree, you know, every tree, tree with all the, the, the wonderful things that can grow from cocoa to coffee to this and that. Everything was in the garden. The garden was a perfect place. Verse 10 says, you know, uh, the, the rivers flow from there. And that talks about, you know, hydroelectric power, everything, everything that, that you can find in the river from fish to everything. Everything was there. And the four river heads that, that come out of the place and the Bible named all of them, you know, and the different things. And it talks about the one that has, that flows towards a villa where there's gold and the gold was gold, you know. And when you, as you read on, one thing that should dawn on you, especially as you approach, I think, verse 15, is uh, the Bible says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. To tend and to keep it. The two words there, tend and keep. Tend means to cultivate, to oversee, to make it profitable. To keep means to protect. So man, the first man, and by application you and I, and in this case, whether men or women, God reposed a very great confidence and a sense of value in us when he created us. His biggest earthly enterprise, he put a man in charge of it. And you know the funny thing, the man was even still single. Yeah. And he put him in charge of it. So we are created as embodiments of value. 
serious value. And we can run things, you know, like we say in this part of the world. We can run things. Adam was there to run things. When God created you, his plan was for you to be an embodiment of value. And that value is what we're supposed to put on the table when we get into a relationship. So a good man, a good woman, supposed to be a cultivator, a gardener, somebody who can keep and tend, a protector, somebody who can watch the back of the other person. And you know, the Bible says, God will never tempt us more than that which he can bear. If you are getting exasperated because of, you know, the issues in your marriage right now, it's because you are not releasing yourself and applying yourself. You need to release yourself. You need to apply yourself. I mean, you can just imagine God put Adam in the garden and Adam just there in the garden all alone thinking, I'm overwhelmed by all this. How come God would put me in charge of all this? Nothing like that happened. In fact, Adam never even complained to God before God said, okay, this guy is pulling his weight. But yet, maybe his life will be more interesting. It's not good that man should be alone. Let's make him, for him, you know, a helper that is comparable or suitable for him. I reckon with the fact that some of us are going through all kinds of things in our relationship right now. But we need to come to terms with the fact that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. That which makes you cry and makes you, you know, melt and makes you an emotional wreck right now, God has put enough in you to be able to wade through it. Make it a profitable adventure. That was God's original intention. So, what we bring to the table matters a great deal. And I want us to know that we have what it takes to run a profitable marriage, a great marriage, a marriage that can deliver godly seeds, just like God put it. Bible says it's because he desires a godly seed. And godly seed there does not mean only godly children. It's seeds, you know, that will release upon the heart. Glory be to Jesus. I said glory be to Jesus. So how do you create an environment in marriage that ensures that you are, you know, an asset and not a liability? That's where I want to land this morning. Now that you understand that whether you're single or married, you're supposed to get into a relationship and you are in a relationship now as an asset and not a liability. In this you and me incorporated, I am an asset, I'm not a liability. That's the perspective that we all need to have. That's how God sees us. But how do we create an, an environment, an atmosphere in a marriage that will make us, you know, that, that, that we're sure that we are Assets are not liabilities. It starts with an understanding of marriage as a covenant. Yeah, that's how, where it starts from. With an understanding of marriage as a covenant. With an understanding of marriage as a covenant. And ladies and gentlemen, I want you to understand this morning that a covenant is different from an ordinary contract. They're not the same. Marriage is much more than a contract is a covenant akin to the type Christ has with the church. Just like we read in Ephesians 5, verse 25, 26, and 27. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church that he gave himself for her. The difference between a contract and a covenant 
is how they approach obligations. A contract speaks to obligation. It gives a sense that the parties are indebted to one another. So, if you sign a contract, you are indebted to the person to which you sign the contract. Am I saying the truth? Yeah. If you say, I'm going to do this and do that, you have to live up to expectation that you will do what you said you would do. In a covenant, the environment is slightly different. The understanding of the obligation is also slightly different. In a covenant, there's no debt or debtor relationship. The debt has been paid. Marriage is a promise of unconditional love. They asked Jesus, how many times will my brother offend me and I will forgive? Is it seven times? Jesus said no. Seventy times seven. He was drawing the boundary. Make it as wide as possible. So that you know that what we are dealing with here is different. It's different. What we are dealing with here is different. Glory be to Jesus. Let me explain this in a slightly different way. When we go through life transitions, what happens to us? When we go through some life transitions, what happens is that we move from desires to expectation. Let me explain what I'm talking about. I want you to have at the back of your mind like a box of desires that you have. As a young graduate, for instance... I had a desire to be paid a specific amount, starting out as an engineer. So looking for my first job, I had a desire for an amount. I had a desire for the kind of car I wanted to drive and the kind of apartment that I wanted to live in. I'm looking at one of my friends here that we used to talk a lot as um, undergrad and as when we left school. And we used to you know, talk about our goals and you know, he, he used to have very high goals and he's living those, some of those dreams right now. Praise God. Don't worry, I won't mention your name. <laughs> but I'm talking about desires. Thank God I have witnesses. People that we desired certain things together. Now, when you got your first job, you got a job, maybe your desire was to be paid 200,000 naira a month. It was a desire. The moment you got your letter of appointment, and you signed your part, and you submitted it to HR, and you resume work, at the end of the first month, it moved from a desire to an expectation. I hope you understand what I'm saying. If they refuse to pay you, you can make trouble. Am I saying the truth? That's how it works. When we go through life's transitions, yeah, I have, I mean, my first daughter, you know, became a teenager last year. And it was a life transition. Because some of the things he used to desire now moved to expectation. Yeah. To say now that I'm a teenager, I think I should have a phone. Yeah. I've been desiring it all this while. And you people have been saying, maybe, maybe when you become a teenager. Now, the kind of negotiation we're having is that there are teenagers and there are teenagers. <laughs> there are different levels. 
So wait for your time. We're, we're trying to play on her to shift the goalpost a bit because we're trying to weigh the things that she could, you know, uh, um, handle and the things that she, could not, she can't handle. When we go through life's transitions, we move from desires to expectations. In the same vein, when you have friends of the opposite sex and they're just friends, your desire is your desire. There's no obligation until there's commitment. Am I saying the truth? The moment there's a commitment, things start to move from desires to expectations and obligations. Are you still with me this morning? Yeah. So if you're here this morning and you're married, you have loads of expectations. And those expectations often will become like obligations, things that you expect your spouse to be able to do, whether around the house or for you personally. So, when you do things only from the standpoint of expectation, what happens is that you start to regulate love. You start to regulate love. You start to regulate love. When you do things only from the standpoint of expectation, you regulate love based on the satisfaction or expectation that you have. And it's important that we understand it, that when you expect things, you feel entitled, you don't feel like you should give accolades when your expectations are met. When marriage is based on expectations, sometimes your expectations are met, but it robs your spouse of gratitude because you just feel like you're doing what you're supposed to do. Am I saying the truth? Yeah. So you see a man struggling to pay school fees and eventually pays, and the wife just says, okay, that's the receipt we have paid. Yeah. And moves on. And I'm like, if only you know what it took me to be able to sort this out. What happens to, this is the receipt, thank you, my husband. We know not, I mean, uh, you're a good man. You're living up to this obligation or expectation. Thank you. God will continue to promote you and bless the work of your hand. And the man feels like everything I've done is worth the while. There are two things that happen in the atmosphere of expectation and obligation. One, it can increase the capacity for ingratitude because we just feel it's normal. Two, is that it can make you to start to regulate love. So when my expectation is not met, I withhold affection. Am I saying the truth? Some people do it, do it to the point of sex. Yeah. To say, you and who? Why are you touching me? You are still smiling. For what? You and who? You have not done this. You have not done that. You know, I've been asking for these things. You didn't do anything about it. That, that, I mean, you have not paid rent. You have not, and you are asking, are you okay? (laughs) Does that sound familiar? (laughs) 
<clears throat> I'm not going to say anything about that. For people who said yes, I hope nobody's sitting beside you. Covenant love is unconditional love. Performance or not performance does not affect the expression of love. Performance or non-performance. You see, the Bible says, while we are yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. So if marriage is like the love between Christ and the church, then while we are yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. You need to understand that this you and me incorporated is two coming together to become one. And the Bible says there in Ephesians chapter 5, no man ate his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. So if my spouse is my flesh, if my spouse and I are one body, it affects everything and my perspective to how we relate. It changes the atmosphere around our house. It's not a judgmental atmosphere. It's an atmosphere of love. You know, there are two ways to get somebody to do something or to instill discipline. You can go punitive and you can go the way of love. Am I saying the truth? You can bully somebody to submission and you can love someone to submission. God chose the path of loving us to submission, not bully us to submission. If God wanted to bully us to submission, I don't know how many of us will be here this morning. The Bible says if the Lord will count iniquity, how many will stand? John chapter 1, when you read verse 16 and 17, 16 and 17, the Bible was talking about the law and grace. And it was talking about Jesus there. You know, uh, from verse 9, 10, it says, so the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood and beheld his glory as the, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. And verse 16, it was talking, verse 16, and said, and of the fullness of, uh, uh, and, the, and of his fullness we have received what? Grace for grace. Talking about Jesus. Of his fullness we have received grace for grace. He said in verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. A New Testament marriage is like a relationship between Christ and the church. In the Old Testament, before Christ, it was an eye for an eye or flesh for, for flesh. You know, a tooth for a tooth. That's how it works. The law came through Moses. It was by the law. When Jesus came, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You and me incorporated that will work very well must be within the atmosphere of grace and truth. Truth speaks to what should be. Grace speaks to latitude and loving each other to submission and to performance. So performance is not under duress. Performance becomes an act of love. So let's think about it. Marriage, marriages don't fail. It's our expectations our expectations, you know, that's what fails. Our expectations in marriage, that's what fails, not, not the marriage itself. Marriages don't fail. If you have experienced a failed marriage, it's not because the concept is flawed, but because you couldn't undo unmet expectations. Can I say that one more time? 
I said, if you have experienced a failed marriage, it's not because the concept itself is flawed, it's because you have experienced unmet expectations. So, a marriage runs on covenant. And a marriage that runs on covenant cannot fail. A marriage that is run on contract is bound to fail. Is your marriage a covenant or a contract? It's a big question. It's a big question that we need to answer. Can you have me look at your neighbor and ask your neighbor, are you in a contract or you're in a covenant? Glory be to Jesus. As I start to round this off, I want to bring this understanding to it in closing. What are the, the do's and don'ts of a covenant relationship? The don'ts. Let me start with that. Don't conform or subdue yourselves. You will eventually implode or explode. What happens is this. Because many people run marriages as contracts without unconditional love, we start to subdue one another. Husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church. That's what the scripture says. Not husband, bully your wife to submission. Yeah. To the point that your wife can no longer talk to you. So it becomes a subdued situation. Or a man has been totally subdued. You know, men, women, you know, sometimes have verbal power more than men. Before a man will say one, a woman can say eight or ten. Or even hundred. After a while, the man doesn't talk again. He just watches as everything is going. That's a marriage where things have already been subdued. Somebody is subdued. Or somebody has decided to just conform. Yeah. Anything I do. Yeah. That marriage will eventually implode or explode. Another way people go about it is to compromise. So I say, don't compromise. This leads to unhappiness and frustration. A compromise is... Take your room, I take my room. When it's time to pay rent, we'll pay. You know this marriage, we both need it. I mean, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. If you, are, you have a leadership position in the society, maybe you are a pastor, or you are a politician, or you just feel like you need the marriage just to keep an appearance. Tell yourself, you know, we both need this thing. Or maybe the families have said, in our families, we don't divorce. So you people go and work anything out. Anything. Just be living together. There are many people who are living like that. Some people, just because they are leaders in church, the marriages are not working, but we have decided that we have to keep an appearance. So let's keep it like that. We cannot divorce. You know, we are Christians. We cannot divorce. So you do your own, I do my own. If I hear from you, it's troubled. Let me do my thing. You do your thing. Praise God. That's a marriage that is resting on a foundation of just simple compromise. It's unsustainable. It leads to frustration. It leads to, you know, all kinds of pain. And we're living a lie. Leads to unhappiness. And God wants us to turn it around. 
my two suggestions as I close. One is that to enjoy or you and me incorporated that is value-driven, that is value-based, that is covenant-based, my first suggestion is that you live like a Christian. Live like a Christian. It takes a Christian that is growing and maturing in the faith to work out a marriage. Marriage is not between boys and girls. It's between a man leaving his father and mother and be joined to his wife. It connotes responsibility. And for us to maximize love, we have to choose the path of responsibility. Yeah. We have to choose the path of responsibility. So if you actually live the way the Bible recommends, you will leave out the marriage covenant to the letter. The same way that I live my life with God. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. The same way I live my life with God as a Christian. I cannot or I should not think or try to transgress into adultery not because of my wife, first and foremost because of God. That's what I mean by living as a Christian. Every sin is first of all sin against God before a human being. Because the first covenant that all of us have is with God. Are you still with me today? Yeah. It's very important. If a man lives like a Christian, a woman lives like a Christian, you don't need a spouse that is a monitoring spirit. God is a monitoring spirit. Let him do his job. Yeah. I don't know if you understand what I'm saying. You have a covenant with God first. God, the Bible says his, his eyes run to and fro over the universe. I can't take God's job from him. So if my wife is going to Jamaica or is going to you know, South Korea, I can't be you know, following her around you know, using a, you know, all this phone app that will tell you where your spouse is you know, and all that. All those things are good, but they just make a monitoring spirit out of you. Yeah, It's God's job. When a man and a woman has become a child of God, living in covenant with God, God says, my eyes run to and fro. If you know that God is everywhere, he sees everything you do, live like a Christian. Don't give your spouse hypertension. Just live like a Christian. Live as a covenant person. Yeah. If the fear of God is in place, you live where? You don't need anybody to be monitoring you. You, know, you don't need anybody to be checking your phone all the time. To the point that you are now locking your phone. I don't know what you are locking. There is nothing that is hidden from the eyes of the one to whom we have to do. That's what the scripture says. And it talks about God. You can lock your phone with 10 passwords. Everything that is there, God knows it. Just live as a Christian. And envision your marriage as a covenant. And lastly this morning, practice unconditional love outside the home. Outside the home. This is what I mean. When you choose to forgive, to be kind, and give without ulterior motive, even outside marriage, it becomes a usual practice of your life. 
if I forgive my colleague at work, why will it be difficult for me to forgive my spouse at home? Just, 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 you know, outside of the home, outside of marriage, practice unconditional love. If you practice unconditional love everywhere you are, because we're supposed to live with unconditional love, then it becomes what happens even in your home. That's, that's how it works. It becomes what happens even in your home. It is easier to practice love in marriage when love has been your nature all along. Yeah. When love has been your nature all along, then it becomes easier to practice love in marriage. It's difficult to practice love in marriage when love is alien to you. And by that, I mean forgiveness. I mean giving, you know, without expecting anything in return. I, I, I mean, I mean being, being, being nice, if we could just put it that way. Being kind. Being kind. It's difficult for you to be kind all the time and just suddenly change at home. Something is wrong. Yeah. Something is wrong. But if you've not practiced kindness, simple kindness, then it's difficult for you to just all of a sudden manifest kindness at home. Glory be to Jesus. Somebody say after me this morning. Say, I'm a child of God. And I'm a child of the covenant. Say, I'm a covenant person. Say, I will play my part. In the covenant that I have with God. And that which I have with my spouse. Say, I receive grace this morning. To run my relationship as a covenant relationship. Say, I'm not a covenant breaker. I'm a lover of God. Say, this morning, I receive grace to love unconditionally, to walk in peace, grace to repent, to turn around, to understand the truth of God's word. And to walk in it. Grace. To be obedient. To the word of God. Thank you Father. Lift your two hands to him. And just bless him all over this place. Father we thank you. Father we thank you. Father we thank you. The elevation.